between Eric and Aaron will get you guys uh, the paper version. Someone knows it's going to be a long morning, so they cracked open a Pepsi real quick. <laughs> They're like, I need some caffeine, I can tell you this. If the sermon goes how the announcements did, this is going to be a long morning. No, I'm kidding. So, I'm excited about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus as we get into these books that are called the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles. Epistles are letters written to pastors, in case you didn't put that together, but um, uh, you'll notice other epistles that Paul wrote or Peter wrote are written to churches or Christians in certain geographical areas, Uh, but the pastoral epistles, they're written to these young pastors who need just some direction on how to take care of of the churches that they've been entrusted with. Um, These books, and beginning with 1 Timothy, address the nature of the church, what the Bible has to say about the church. Um, I'm just excited about this. You know, I think one of the main things that's been in my heart knowing 1 Timothy was coming up, is I just believe the Lord wants to raise up uh, ministers in our body. Uh, He wants you to know your role in this church. He wants you to know your giftings. He wants you uh, to know your place where you can serve and use uh, the gifts he's given you so that the church can be built up or edified. And I just believe the Holy Spirit's going to do that in us. I know he's going to do a purifying work. I know he's going to use... Um, an ordering work as we just understand, um, well, what? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, so just a couple chapters away, uh, what it describes as really the, the theme of this letter, as if, uh, as you look at the end of the verse, uh, he says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So if you're kind of new to church, or even in the last few years, and you're just like, man, I'm just, this is new, or it's exciting, or, you know, I'm learning. Um, What's exciting about this book is that we're going to learn, you know, what's the purpose of the church? How are we to conduct ourselves? How are we to live among one another? What's the order? What's the structure? What's the purpose of the church? And I'm excited to get into that with you guys. And so the overarching purpose of this book is to show proper ordering and conduct in the body of Christ. And don't you like what that chapter 3 verse 15 said? It says that the house of God is the church of the living God. So what is this? I don't know. I'm not a big church guy, you know. Uh, well, it, it's, it's the church of the living God, you know. And now, you know, um, Uh, you know, I like to be out in nature. Nature's my church, you know, among the trees, among the sagebrush, among the the deers and the bucks and the, this is my sanctuary. No, no, not really, not biblically. I know what you mean and I, I get it. You know, I love to be outside like the next guy, but there's something about the gathering and the group of the people who've been saved by the grace of God that's very special to God. And there's something about us who've been redeemed by the grace of God that are the pillar and the ground of truth. 
And so we're going to find in this epistle that truth isn't something that's just relative. You know, whatever truth is for you, that's for you. Whatever truth is for me, it's for me. Whatever religion that guy is or that girl is, you know, whatever. Uh, no, not, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, there are strong foundations and pillars and supports for truth. And the people of God who've been redeemed by God are that pillar. And as we gather together in the house of the Lord, that pillar, it just stands strong as we just rest underneath it. It protects us in the truth. So uh, you'll have to forgive me. I found a new great book on First Timothy. It's by two of just these men I really respect. They've done a series together. R. Kent Hughes, um, who's out of um, Wycliffe, uh, and then Brian Chappelle, who's a pastor of uh, preaching, that we, all the elders, have gone through a series he's done at his seminary, uh, Christ-Centered Preaching. And so I've just been enjoying this book this week, and so I may quote them a few times, but to set up the introduction for our new book that we're in, uh, the, the problem is I never know if it's Hughes talking or Chappelle talking, so, you know, it's one or the other. But uh, they say... So the letter of 1 Timothy provides an exhilarating essentials to both the leader and the congregation as to how they must conduct themselves for the glory of God. This is cause for marked enthusiasm in our day when so much confusion about what the church is, uh, ought to be like. God tells us in 1 Timothy how the church must look and must act if it's to glorify him. I was at a birthday party the other night and was sitting next to Johnny, who often leads worship up here, a good friend, and, and we're eating some delicious cake, and, and he's just like, oh, I'm so excited for the pastoral epistles. He's like, you're doing 1 Timothy, and then, then what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, 2 Timothy. Oh, 2 Timothy. Then are you going to do Titus? Yeah, then Titus. Oh, and he gets up you know, to go put his plate. He's just like, weeks in the pastoral epistles. And I hope that that enthusiasm is in you as well, you know? And if you know me, you know, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, breaking it down, it's going to be weeks um, in the pastoral epistles. But something I'm going to tell you is going to be so good for us is we live in a day and an age where there is an erosion of truth. There is a lack of care for truth. And there's a lack of authority of the word of God, this leatherback book that you might have in your hand. If you're really careful, you might buy a calfskin one. That way during the sermon you can, ah, calfskin, you know, uh, but, or paperback, doesn't really matter, or digital, you know, but the thing is, it is the word of God. It is the authority of of the church. And so everything we do as a church, we bow our knees and our hearts before this book, before this good. We believe that it is inspired by God. That means that holy men of God were moved and were carried along to write the words of God in their own styles. We believe that this book is inerrant particularly in its original writings, which, by the way, 
have not differed over the centuries. We have very accurate copies. There's nothing we need to worry about about the book. Now, you might need to be looking at your translation and whether you're using a paraphrase versus, you know, word-for-word translation. That would depend upon how you approach your learning of it and your understanding of it. But uh, what we have in our book is is God-breathed, God-moved, without error, and something we can take to the bank. Now, this is so important in this day and age because even within the church, We've got people that are just saying, oh, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, and however I interpret it, it might be different than how you interpret it, and it doesn't matter at the end of the day. But if you do your work and you do your homework, there's not any private interpretation to the scriptures. You don't get to say what it means to you, because what it means to you might be wrong and probably is wrong. We've got to learn the rules according to grammar of how and literature on how we interpret the holy word of God. And so it's why we come and we gather as a church under qualified teachers and leaders who are all about protecting the flock of God for the glory of God. And so we live in a day and age where, and we've been through it so many times as leaders, where, you know, whatever the issue may be, uh, you know, we're just confronted with, well, that's what it means to you, and here's what it means to me. And in, in those cases, it's usually what it means to me is pure heresy and will lead me on the path to hell. That's a dangerous thing. And so as we come before Timothy, or rather Paul, our teacher for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to have established in us once again a real value for truth, a real value for what God says his church is supposed to be. As Paul writes this, we'll just go ahead and get into the text today. Verse 1, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So Paul, he's He's an apostle. Apostle speaks of one who was sent out by the church. And the way that Paul's referring to this is he's speaking of this group of apostles that he's included within them. And let me just quote beg on what an apostle was. An apostle or the apostles were a small, definitive, unique, one-time group of individuals who were chosen and called and sent by Christ. They were witnesses of the risen Christ. So they eyewitnessed him in his resurrected um, state. They were endowed with a special measure of the Holy Spirit. Their work was confirmed by signs and wonders. And their work extended to the totality of the church and was for the totality of of their lives. Okay, so when Paul speaks of apostle, he's speaking of really the 12 disciples minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul. Okay, 
Uh, those are the apostles. And that's important to note that if you hear apostle today, some churches will say, oh, this is pastor so-and-so and he's an apostle. Um, you need to be careful right away. Because right away they are placing upon that man a similar authority, if not the same authority, that Paul had or the other disciples. Uh, and therefore, whatever he says, and often what he says is countered the Bible, they go on and follow that man. And I'm telling you now, you think of a very popular church today, and I'm not thinking of one in particular, but many of them, if you think of it, you'll notice that they attach apostle to this man's name. And then you'll notice as you do your work, this man has his own private revelations from God that actually go against the word of God. It's dangerous, okay? Now, a safe thing, although maybe still borderlines, is as we send out the Nepal team, we're sending out apostles, but we don't mean it, and we don't even really use that. We don't mean it in the same way as Paul meant it here. And so because there's confusion, we just kind of don't throw that word out there when we're talking about maybe our missionaries that are sent out. Um, we're just sent out missionaries by the local church. Uh, so, but Paul, and if you know the history of Paul, he's an apostle. He, and he has this authority bestowed on him by the commandment of God, verse 1 says, our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. And I just love this. Uh, you have this Trinitarian statement in the sense that uh, you've got the first two of the Trinity, the, 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 the God, the Father, who's also called our Savior. It's a very Old Testament way to refer to God. But then we have the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus with this Lord in front of him because he's curious, he's master, he also is God. But notice Jesus Christ's little, um, what would you call it, description at the end of this phrase. He is our hope. He's our hope. Are you here today and you're in a hopeless situation? Come to Jesus Christ. Man, I just have loved this phrase the last few days as I've been studying that it's Jesus Christ who is our hope. Don't turn to anybody else because it will be, it will be a hope that falls short. But the hope of Jesus Christ is an anchor for your soul. Paul's message here is Christ's message. And there are some in the church today that would say, I'm prepared to accept the words of Christ by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and parts of Acts. I'm prepared to accept the letters in red, if you've got a words of Christ in red Bible. I'm prepared for that, but I'm not prepared to accept the words of Paul. I hold Christ's words as higher than Paul's. And as we understand inspiration and inscripturation, we understand that the words of Paul in the scriptures are the words of Christ. The authority with which he writes is by Jesus Christ, our hope. Now, this might be deep for you, but get ready to go deep, all right? The Lord wants us to go deep. The Lord wants us to mature as a church he wants us to know these things so that we can have an authority about our lives as we live for Jesus and we know what we rest upon. 
And so as he's writing, he just starts out this letter to Timothy, a young pastor, uh, and he just says, hey, the things I'm writing, I'm writing with authority. And then he says in verse 2, and by the way, today we're going through verse 11, just so you have some sort of an idea of how far is this guy going today. I was also wondering that, so I just set that for you guys. Let's go into verse, no, I knew I was going to 11. Verse 2, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. You gotta love the story of how Paul met Timothy, how the Apostle Paul met a young Timothy. It's found in Acts chapter 16 is really the first time we get into it, but it's probable that Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey when he went through Lystra and he was preaching the gospel and he was stoned for the message of the gospel. And at some point in there, they thought, they thought that when Paul got stoned that he was killed, and that may be true, and that he, he came back to life, or he, or he was near death and was revived. Um, but uh, in that, at some point, it's most likely that uh, Paul, uh, Timothy's mother, Lois, and his grandmother, Eunice, both got saved and began making a disciple of their son and grandson, Timothy. Okay, and so then as Paul goes back in his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, it says he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So we're in Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 2. Timothy, it says, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Icomium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So Timothy, he's a young guy. He's, an, he's, a, you know, he's been raised up the last few years as a Christian. Uh, he's half Jewish, but his dad's Greek, so his dad's non-Jewish. The Jews, of course, circumcise their male children. The Greeks don't. And so Paul, he has this, I want to take this young man with me as, a, as an assistant on the mission field, but I know that as we go and we minister to Jews, it's going to be a stumbling block to them that he hasn't been circumcised. N different world, huh? Different culture, like, you know, cruising along and there's a preacher coming to do a big tent revival in town and you're like, hey, who's this guy? Man, eloquent speaker. Hey, um, so what's his circumcision state, you know? Uh, you know? It's like, we don't really go there anymore. <laughs> We've learned proper boundaries, and we just kind of stopped asking about the nether regions. Um, but because to that culture, it would have been a stumbling block that uh, that was the case for Timothy, um, they circumcised him. Be because the purpose was for world evangelism. The purpose was so that the message would, would not be a distraction. Now, in another place, you see Titus. Now, Titus wasn't um, a Jew. He was a Roman. And there were a bunch of Jews around them that were saying, if you want to be a real Christian, uh, they were Jewish Christians. They were Pharisees. Uh, they, were, they, they were what were called Judaizers. Uh, they said, if you want to be a real Christian, then you must be circumcised. And then it says that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And there was a difference. One was for world evangelism. The other was there was a, a legalistic, works-based righteousness guilt trip 
being put on Titus. And he said, I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm not saved by circumcision. And so because this is the context of this conversation, I'm not going to be circumcised. Okay. Um, So anyways, great little fact about Timothy was he got circumcised. Okay. I know everyone was wondering it. Um, So Paul took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, because they knew his father was Greek. Verse four. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in the number daily. Great lesson there for us on if there's any trip being put on you of if you want to be a real good Christian, then you have to accomplish this or accomplish that uh, rather than rest upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his gracious provision for you uh, that we receive through just belief and trust and rest in what Jesus has done. Uh, that doesn't mean that a flow out of that is obedience and action for the Lord. Um, but when it comes to the foundation, uh, we know that a man is not saved by the works that we do in the flesh, but by the grace of Jesus Christ and his gift towards us of the cross. Um, neat little just history we'll read later in the next book, 2 Timothy 1.5. Paul is just remembering, he calls to remembrance uh, the genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. So as you look at verse 2, Timothy was a true son in the faith. He was a disciple of Paul. So neat to see in the book of Acts as we went through a series the last few weeks that that the, the Christian community is to be a community that makes a bigger Christian community. Uh, we are those that teach others how to follow Jesus and the things that he's instructed. That's called making disciples or discipleship. It's called having followers and having students and being teachers and teaching people how to know Jesus and how to follow Jesus. And we see that in the apostles. We see that in Paul, that he was a guy that took another guy under his wing and taught him how to be a minister for the Lord. And that's part of the vision of our church as we've unveiled uh, in October. Uh, well, we've, it's, you know, it's part of our uh, mission statement, vision statement. Uh, and then this year we just were being very purposeful on how we're going about making disciples. That really our vision right now in this season is that everybody in our church has somebody that they're leading to follow Jesus. And so we've got elders and pastors that are pouring into people who are pouring into people. And if you've been in this church very long, you should have gotten a phone call. You should have gotten an email. You should have gotten a message from someone that says, man, I'm coming after you to make you a follower of Jesus. Will you come along with me? And I'd encourage you to respond to that individual and say, you know what? This person is just doing what Paul did, making a disciple making a follower, and and how considerate that they've thought of me by name, that the church has thought of me by name. If you haven't received a call yet, if you haven't received uh, an encouragement, um, make sure to let me know. I want to get your number, and we want to get you involved in being a disciple of Jesus. Um, That's our mission. That's, That's what the church does. We make disciples who then go and make disciples who then go. So who do you have in your life 
that you're training up to follow Jesus? Who do you have? Who, who is discipling you to follow Jesus? I remember years ago when I was on staff at Calvary Corvallis, we used to have little slips and the bullet. Well, we used to have bulletins. I mean, well, that'll date you. Um, nobody reads that. We don't have bulletins because nobody would take them. So um, now we have Facebook. So sorry, we'll set you up with one. Um, there was a little slip of paper that said, you know, I'm new to the church. Or I've been going here for a while. Uh, I want to know more about Jesus, and you can check that box. Or I want to be baptized, you can check that box. Or um, I want to be discipled, you can check that box. And one day we got a slip of paper from a man we all knew. His name was Harry McKay. And Harry McKay was 96 years old. And he checked the box, I want to be discipled. You know, our culture would say, who's older than Harry? They can disciple Harry, you know? Well, shoot, I guess he's on his own, you know? <laughs> Sorry, you know? No, man, we are in error if we think that the person who disciples us has to be older than us. Man, we just want people that, man, they're following hard after Jesus, and you know what? I want to go arm in arm with them to follow hard after Jesus. And that stuck with me. Oh, Harry, he's passed away since then, but he got plugged in to be a disciple. I love that. And you know what? I also know young teens who have been disciple makers, have taken people under their wing to follow hard after the Lord. It's not about age. It's about our purpose as the redeemed people of Jesus. We've been impacted and changed by the gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done. He's washed away my sins. He's saved me from hell. He's got an epic plan to save the entire world, and he wants to use me and you in it, so let's go for it. Let's go learn about Jesus. And so please, if you haven't yet been contacted about discipleship in this church, come talk to me because we want to, we want to get you involved in the plan. I have just disciples in my life that just uh, now it's crazy to see them. They were young teenagers and now they're pastors in churches and they have, they're all married and professionals and have kids. And it's just crazy to see uh, true sons in the faith like Paul had. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Uh, so part of the church history, and as you read the book of Acts, Paul moved on, but he told Timothy, stay in Ephesus. And as we're going to see in even this first part of this letter, um, he was being told, you got to stay there because he was going to be going through some hard things that were going to make him want to run away. Pastoral ministry can be so difficult and it can make us want to start typing up our letters of resignation and just have them on a quick file that we can start sending out because it's difficult and it's hard. And Paul says, stay, stay in Ephesus. And you've got a purpose there. You need to command or charge some that are there. Don't depart from the true gospel. Teach no other doctrine. Teach no other truth. And as we look at Acts chapter 20, when Paul's on his way kind of towards the end of his life and the end of his ministry, he's leaving Ephesus and he tells the elders in Ephesus that uh, in verse 25 of Acts 20, now I know that you all among I've gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he's talking to the elders, and, and we'll see in this section that they are anointed by the Holy Spirit. They've been tasked by the Holy Spirit. They shepherd, they oversee this church that was purchased. And then this call towards the elders is that in verse 29, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so really the idea is that among the elders, among the leadership, these savage wolves will come and they won't spare the flock. And this is what's beginning to happen with poor Timothy uh, in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, it goes on to say, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night or night and day, with tears. So the situation in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was at the time of this letter, was that five years had passed by since Paul had said goodbye to the Ephesian elders and had told them, watch out for this, this wolf or these wolves coming in from among you. Only five years had gone by. It doesn't take long for people who even drank from the pure spring of apostolic doctrine and truth. They're there with Paul the Apostle who's seen Jesus. They're being taught by him. He goes away and just five years go by. And we've got itching ears that want to hear a different gospel. We want to hear some new thing. We want some new revelation. And we drink the poison and we go with the flow. And before you know it, we're, we're deceived. We're deceived. Only five years had gone by, and these savage wolves had shown themselves. They looked like fluffy, friendly sheep on the outside, but inwardly they were ravenous wolves. And what they brought with them was this message that one man referred to as special nuggets. I've got something special for you, secret truth. I want to tell you about angels in the scriptures and angles in the scriptures that no one else knows about this is just a little something special god's shown me for you and so those with no discernment and those with no scriptural foundation eat this stuff up right away it's more palatable oftentimes it's more entertaining it makes the hairs on the back of your neck go up and so we follow that junk rather than following the true, pure word of God that is steadfast and stable and goes through the ages. With that steadfast truth comes right behavior. Right belief leads to right behavior. And as we'll see in just a few verses, following after these, these little Christian novelty messages will bring perversity of behavior. Crooked doctrine or crooked truth will bring crooked behavior. And so Timothy is reminded to guard the church against Christian novelties. Donald Guthrie uh, wrote, These words give a timely warning to our modern age against the quest for novelties in Christian teaching. Now, Paul already knew who at least two of these men were. He's going to name them at the end of the chapter, Hymenaeus and Alexander. 
And you know, there's often times that we're told in this PC world that we live in, don't name out the false teachers and don't name out the heresies, the heretics. It's not politically correct. But we see that Paul did not hold any punches. He named the false doctrines. He named the false teachers that were leading people off to hell, especially those that were leading off people of the church that he founded to hell. And he says, you know Hymenaeus? Watch out for him. You know Alexander? Watch out. In Romans chapter 16, he tells the Romans in verse 17, I urge you to note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. What's it look like to note somebody? All right, note them, okay? Avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Guys, when it comes to doctrinal integrity, it's okay to be a zealot. It's okay to be a Berean and search the scripture. It's okay to get leadership involved and say, there's a message going around the church right now that concerns me. It seems that it is side-skirting some very important scriptures in the Bible, and I want to bring it to you. Okay? In Galatians 1.6, he says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. We are prone as people to turn away so soon. As Ephesians says, any wind of doctrine can just toss us to and fro. Let's go on to verse 4. So we're to keep with true and right doctrine, teach no other doctrine. And then in verse 4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. And so what's happening for Timothy, this young pastor, is that in the church, the central issues of the faith had become peripheral vision or peripheral issues thinking of vision right now and the peripheral issues in the faith had become the central issues and whenever we do that we're on a wrong course we're in need of a course correction when the peripheral becomes central fables and genealogies really become what everyone cares about and we're told not to give heed to fables, that we're to be very careful not to pay attention to the myths and the legends that are out there. The endless genealogies or limitless lists. These people had become susceptible to fables. Fables are nice to listen to. Myths and legends tickle our ears. These people have been susceptible to the guy with the charts and the nice PowerPoint presentations. He's got all the codes figured out with triangles and arrows and this and that and the other. And we all just say, this is incredible. Rather than saying, I'm going to need to search this out here. <laughs> I'm going to need to search this out. 
These people would fill their blackboards with charts and diagrams and symbols and theories and triangles and stars and whatever these silly people would sit there and listen to and say, wow, that's incredible. And just as Isaiah said, all we like silly people have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We follow after our own fancy. And the guys that Paul is speaking about, they exist even today, and they spin all kinds of yarns. They weave all kinds of, of tapestries for us to be intrigued by. And before you know it, we're spending all of our time with the DVD collection about this, that code, this code, the other code, where this star was at this time, and how this, you know, if you add this word up and divide it by its reciprocal and blah, 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 then you have, you know, the day that Jesus is going to show up. And pretty soon we're just watching those DVDs and looking at those colorful websites that are flashing, you know, 1983 type graphics in front of our eyes, and we've forgotten to spend time in the Word of God. And we're led away by our own fancies. Some Jewish rabbis in the context that Paul's speaking of took things, they spun that tapestry of odd stories and they put them to Jewish scriptures and they'd say things like this and put them in the Jewish scriptures saying, oh, archangels observe the Sabbath day and archangels get circumcised. And they say, hey, isn't this a freaky idea? Yeah, it is. Well, let's make a chart about it. Let's make a six-tape series about it. Let's get the people freaking out about it. And they get a following, and they get famous, and they get money. And a cult is formed. Listen to what Hughes and Chappelle wrote. <clears throat> the fanciful allegorical creation of stories about the people in the genealogies. You know, you guys probably, you get to those chapters in Genesis, you know, and it's like, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and you're like, next chapter, <laughs> you know? And the Jews would be like, oh, I can make something out of this. And they get all kinds of followers, different culture. But those are the people that are, you know, figuring out who's circumcised or not. So um, we have our own weird stuff. It goes on to say, the Jewish tradition included books such as the Book of Jubilees. A fanciful rewrite of Old Testament history from creation to Sinai. The later biblical antiquities of Philo retells more of the Old Testament story from creation to the death of King Saul. And their disciples live on today. Consider the incredible distortions that the number 666 has undergone to spell out the name of every international villain from Caesar to Napoleon to Hitler to Stalin. A few years ago, the best-selling book, The Bible Code, attend, I don't know what this word is, Tendentious, tendentious, sorry, uh, tendentious interpretation of the Old Testament claimed that an Israeli mathematician, Dr. Elijahu Rips, has decoded the Bible with a computer formula, unlocking 3,000-year-old prophecies of events such as the Kennedy assassination and the election of Bill Clinton, everything from the Holocaust to Hiroshima, from the moon landing to the collision of a comet with Jupiter. Religious novelties abound everywhere fantastic claims of new truth about everything from raising perfect children to restraining the aging process. The problem, listen to this, here's the problem. The problem is that these teachings and their systems, while not denying the gospel outright, replace it. They will replace the gospel. 
And these things, Paul goes on to say there in verse 4, they cause disputes. We get away from the pure teaching of the word of God and we get focused on other things. And the next thing you know, our core groups and our times together, we're just arguing about uh, these systems and these charts. It causes disputes. They cause confusion. And I encourage you to look at what we might call the cults in this day and age. And many of them wave something like this around. You might even look on the windows of their buildings and they have this, a picture of something like this. And you go in and you realize, oh, they brought you in with this, but then they're going to give you this pamphlet and this book about the secret knowledge you can get. And this other book that's actually the better book, and it's an incomplete reading of the Bible unless you have this book. In fact, this book is actually the replacement of that book. And before you know it, you're on the path to hell. It's a dangerous thing. We want to be careful to bring things into the church that are just going to cause doubtful things to dispute over. They're going to just bring ignorant and foolish disputes that Paul says in Romans and 2 Timothy and Titus, these things are unprofitable and useless. And that's all in the place of, as verse 4 says in our text, godly edification that comes in faith. The things that we bring, we want to build up the church. And the minute they start to cause disputes, we've got to check. We've got to check it. Look at verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Okay, so stick to true doctrine. Avoid these foolish genealogies and endless genealogies and these lists and these myths and all this stuff. And the reason I'm commanding this, the reason I'm telling you this is because we want to see love fostered. We want to see love coming from a pure heart. We want to see people with good consciences and sincere faith. That's the goal of the instruction. It's for the protection of the church and for the advancement of what is true and right. And that's love. That's love. Pure love. Good love. Sincere love. Love for God and love for people. All of the law is fulfilled in that one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 6 says, From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. So when we turn aside from true doctrine, from the true teachings of the word of God, we get into all these systems and lists and charts and just stuff that's just not grounded in the word of God. Uh, then what we have is we have uh, confusion and disputes and a turning aside that happens or a falling away and idle talk begins to uh, begins to reign. There's a widespread neglect of the pastoral epistles in this day because they call out such teachings because they declare that there is an absolute truth. There is right. There is order. There is structure. But because of that, because that's not PC in 2018, people try to avoid Titus, uh, Titus in 1st and 2nd Timothy. They want to go to these idle talk. Idle talk, maybe you're a King James Version guy. Your version would say they turn to vain jangling. Vain jangling. Or ESV, vain discussion. 
The verse actually says in the ESV that certain persons, by swerving from true doctrine, have wandered away into vain discussion. Or NIV, meaningless talk. Meaningless talk. Look at what our book in chapter 6, verse 4 said. These type of people that get into vain janglings, they are proud. They know nothing. They are obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which envy and strife, reviling and evil suspicions come. And you know, guys, typically you can spot it a mile away. And typically it comes from an invite over to a home where the DVD series comes out. <laughs> you know, not against DVDs. I love me a good DVD. But if there's something that is attached to the uh, introduction to the DVD, like, this is crazy. It's something you've never seen before about the Bible. Let me just pop this in. Get ready to be amazed. <laughs> if you've been a Christian for very long at all, you've already been amazed. I've been amazed with the gospel. I've been amazed at, at who Jesus is. I've been amazed at what the word of God just in and by itself is. No, you're going to be amazed by the laser light show at the introduction of the DVD. And then it's going to lead you into a dream world of magic. And you're just going to have your mind open to who God really is. It's stuff that we would have never. In fact, I'm going to give you this book too, because I've found that in my reading of the Bible, I just wasn't getting enough. So I thought I'd just go ahead and write down the thoughts that came to my heart that God gave me, that it's just going to, it's going to really enhance your Bible reading time. In fact, you know, pretty soon you're just going to set aside your Bible and just read my book. It's out there guys. It's out there on the Christian books bestsellers. We got to watch out for it. In chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, Oh, Timothy. Usually when someone says something like that, Oh, Rory. You know, oh, whatever. Uh, they're really trying to get something across to you. Uh, Guard what was committed to your trust. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. Guys, it leads to a straying, a turning away. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither the things they say nor the things that they affirm. So these guys are all about the law, but whatever they start saying, they don't even get what they're saying. <laughs> You know, have you ever been in a conversation with someone and they drop a big vocabulary word and the minute they say it, they kind of have a word of confusion on their face and they're praying to God that you don't define what that word means? Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm typically the guy in that. In, <laughs> you know, you've heard it. In fact, I quoted a word today. I, mean, I don't know what that means, but trust me, it's okay. You know, yeah, feel free to look it up. Did you know that that word has a history of leading people into demonism? Oh, well, okay. All right, let's look it up, right? These guys are they're teachers, but they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Like Paul says in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they become fools. These guys are all about dogmatic, uh, dogmatic lists, but they don't understand the dogma that they're preaching. They have no grasp of the sacred context of the text or the law that they were waving around. And when they speak, their words were as meaningless to themselves as to the ones that they were speaking to. These guys were all about the law. Now, I know that that's a little bit out of our realm, but it shouldn't be. Because the law is important even to us as Christians. 
Let's look at what Paul says in verses 8. We're just going through verse 11 here. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So these guys got stuck on how well they knew the law, yet they never got to the end goal of what the law was given for. The law had a purpose, and it wasn't to make us righteous. It was to show us we weren't righteous. It was to show us we were lawbreakers. And it was to give us hope. Once we saw we were broken, there was to be entered in the hope of grace. The law is good. And Paul preaches that in Romans chapter 7. Many Christians think the law is evil and that it's sin. But Paul says in Romans, what shall we say? Is the law sin? And by the way, what, maybe you don't know. What is he talking about, the law? Like Oregon regulations on big game hunting or what? Well, yeah. But no, okay, uh, he's talking about, you know, the, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments among 630 other laws that were given that were, uh, that were for the people of Israel. Okay, so, you know, the law, uh, it's, it's, is it sin because we're Christians? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetousness uh, unless the law had said you shall not covet. Okay, so the law is good, and he uses the example of covet, coveting. Coveting is something that you won't always see me do because it happens in here and in here. Okay, um, so it's one of those that he points out like, I wouldn't have known lying unless the law said, I mean, it's easy to see lying, but covetous, you know, it, it can be a little more sneaky. And so the law is good because it shows us our sin, but then verse 8 says, sin takes opportunity by the commandment and produces in me all manner of evil desire. And so what Paul is going to go on and say is, the law is good, okay? But our sinful nature takes the law and using, uses it as a launching pad to sin. So this is good, I'm bad, and so my sinful nature, okay? So the law is like, you know, do not steal. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go steal. That's what sin does to something that's good. And Paul will say that in the book of Romans chapter 7. And Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was a tutor or like a teacher to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Okay, so the law... We use it in our evangelism because we tell people, you've sinned. You've made idols in your heart against God. You've not kept the Sabbath day. You've, you know, you've made graven images. You've had other, other worships in your heart apart from the Lord Jesus. And then we go on and say, and plus, you've stolen from your neighbor. You've coveted your neighbor's wife. You've lusted in your heart after her. You've uh, stolen. You've... Um, you've coveted your neighbor's truck or donkey or whatever, you know, and we can use the Ten Commandments in our witnessing as a, tu as a tutor, as a tool to show people you're a sinner. And that crushes them so that they can be put back together with the gospel of what Jesus has done for them. You know, the, the law breaks us. The law makes the Humpty Dumpties, you know, but what these law teachers that Timothy's dealing with, they weren't bringing the solution 
that you can be put back together by Jesus Christ. And so verse 9, it goes on to say, knowing this, that the law wasn't made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, and for manslayers. So the law wasn't made for the righteous. In fact, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those that are looking into the mirror that shows us the mud on our face and the blemishes on our face, but are blind to it, they're not going to be crushed and broken by the law. They think that they're well and that they have no need of a physician. But those that read the law and allow it to break them and show us our sinfulness, we can be helped by it. We can be helped by it because it shows us our need for a remedy. This, the, the law, the law of God was given for the heathen person and the rebellious person, for lawbreakers and for rebels, for those that are irreligious and impious and sinful people. Does anyone feel like, that's me? I mean, Rory, the, the list that you're reading of here, I'm, I see myself in at least one of these categories. I mean, if, if not now, then at least then. I remember being unholy and irreverent. I remember being irreligious and worldly. Then it goes on, you know, it almost follows the Ten Commandments in this list that he gives. You know, you've got murderers of fathers and mothers. You know, and, and when Jesus talks about these commandments, he brings it to a real heart issue. You know, he talks about, man, if you hate someone or angry in someone in your heart, you've already murdered them. You know, man, if, if you look at another woman to lust after her, you've already, in, in the book of God, you've already committed adultery with her. If you say to someone, you fool in your heart towards them, you've already murdered them and, and you are in danger of judgment. Murderers of fathers and murderers of mother. I would never. Or it's, it's translated striking your father and mother. I would never. I never hit my mom or dad. Well, you're looking at a guy who grew up in the church. And in my rebellious years, if my mom, she's going to listen to this. It's on the recording. It's a confession time. You know, I think we'll skip it today. I'm sorry, Mama. <laughs> Never meant to hurt you. <laughs> Argument with Mom? She turns around? Guess what finger comes up? To her back. Your sweet little pastor that you love so much. <laughs> I've never striked my mother. Oh, you have. And you know you've done it too. With your words, with your actions, with your behavior, your whole honoring your mother and father thing shows you that you're under condemnation. You broke the law. You need a savior. Book of James tells us if you broke one of the laws, you were good with all the others, you broke one of them, you're guilty of breaking all of them. You're broken, little Humpty Dumpty that you are. manslayers and murderers verse 10 for fornicators for fornicators the sexually immoral 
I've never. Boy, Jesus just, he brought it home. He showed it's more about external obedience to the law. And then in your heart, if you've lusted after another woman, you have already fornicated. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And we find that we have broken the law. You know what the Greek word is here for fornicators? Are you ready for it? Pornos. The law was given so that we would know, well, I haven't, you know, had this affair or had this adultery or gone into the strip club or this or that. But in case you think that you're too innocent, pornos. That's a little 2018 treat for us. It's a gift from the Lord that the law shows us that if you are involved in that, you've committed sexual immorality. You're Humpty Dumpty. You're broken. That's the bad news. Can I, I'm going to get to the good news in just a little bit. But the law was given for those that would be sexually immoral. In the Ten Commandments, it just says adultery. In the Gospels, it says lusting in your heart. It goes on to speak of sodomites, which is homosexuality, or those who abuse themselves with mankind. It speaks of kidnappers or slave dealers. Still happens today. Human traffickers. For liars, or those who falsify. For deceivers, the law, the commandments were given for us to show us. Well, you know, I, I knew in my conscience that I shouldn't uh, be lying and deceiving. But when I read it in the commandments of God, I find that I am broken and I am under condemnation. And he says, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, anything that's, in, that's, impos- um, that's rather in opposition toward true teaching the law was given to to break us and show us we are broken in our last verse you guys can breathe easy now we're worship team okay 11 o'clock guys anything look at the end of verse 10 And anything, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, sound doctrine that is according to the glorious gospel. You see how it's important to read both the verses together. Sound doctrine that is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So all of this list of of the law, you know, what the law addresses, all of these sins, all of these disgusting things that we have broken, one, two, three, ten of them, all of them together, whatever, we're all confined under sin. All of these things were against the gospel. They're contrary to sound doctrine. They're contrary to sound doctrine that's for the gospel. The gospel is the story with the good ending. It's the story with the good ending. It's the story that tells us, number one, we have broken the good law of God. That's called sin. 
We've fallen short of the good glory of God. We sinned when we were lawless and insubordinate. In our infancy, all the way up through our preteens, all the way up through our teenage years, all the way up through college, all the way up through young adult, young married, middle age, all the way up through the, you know, the senior discount at Denny's. And, man, lawless and insubordinate. Ungodly and sinners, we broke the law. We were unholy, we were profane, we were telling the jokes with the other guys. We were flipping off our parents and rebelling against them and striking them physically sometimes or with our words or with our obedience. When we didn't obey, we were striking them. We were fornicators. We were sodomites and kidnappers and liars perjurers. We were contrary to sound doctrine. And in that, we have found ourselves under sin and under condemnation. But the good news is, verse 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. He's revealed our sin to us through his law. That is a gift. Some of you grew up in homes and churches that it was just law and legalism and just, you know, Ten Commandments and this and that. I understand how a lot of that was painful. But there's part of that that you can thank the Lord for. Because in it, you were, you were revealed the law of God. That is a tutor. That slaps your hand with the ruler and says... No, no. That's wrong. It was his goodness that revealed us our sin through the law. Showed us that we were a desperate case. That we were more grievous and sinful than we could ever imagine. But in his goodness, he also showed us that we are more loved than we could ever dream. He came and bore the punishment for our transgression in his own body on the cross at Calvary. He died for your sin. And if those would turn from their sinfulness to his sacrifice that he made and put their trust in that he has done it all. He lived the perfect life that I could never live he died a sacrificial death upon the cross. It should have been me. And he substituted himself for me. And the blood that he shed on the cross, it comes and it washes over me and it washes over my sin and it purges them away and I am as white as snow. Even more than purging our sins away, it took those sins and it put them upon him on the cross. He bore our sin. The law is good if one uses it lawfully to show us our depravity. But it has an end story to it. The gospel of the Lord Jesus. 